the, the analogy people like to use is the airplane cockpit. The pilots and the co-pilots, they sit in the cockpit and fly the airplane with all the passive investors, LPs, back and coach. Well, what people don't realize is, you know, you can have a pretty big cockpit and you can have dead weight in the cockpit. So initially I was dead weight. I just sat on the jump seat. <laughs> but I in the jump seat, you can see what everybody's doing and you start to realize that most people are just playing on their cell phones and it, it's kind of easy. You know? <laughs> Welcome to How to Buy Giant Apartment Buildings, the number one show about growing your family's wealth with apartment building investments. Now, here's your host, Mark Allen Kenny. Hey, everybody. Welcome to How to Buy Giant Apartment Buildings. I'm Mark Allen Kenny. Our guest today is Lane Kawaoka. How you doing, Lane? Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. Awesome. Thanks for being here. For those of you who do not know, Lane is an ex-civil engineer who not only invests passively in real estate, he also controls over 3,500 units across the U.S. Lane is the host of Simple Passive Cashflow, one of the top 50 investing podcasts about investing passively in real estate. So Lane, I'm really looking forward to speaking with you today. Could you tell the listeners a little bit more about your background and how you got started in real estate? Yeah, so I uh, started investing in 2009. I got was brainwashed like the rest of us to uh, go to school, get a good job. I went to the University of Washington where I got my engineering degree and then I went to work for the man as a construction supervisor and I bought a house to live in because that's what my parents told me to do. And then I was never home because like most young kids who have good jobs, that job is pretty horrible and they send you on the road all the time. So I just started to rent it out and I got a taste of cash flow and then I never looked back since. So you started investing in 2009. What were those first properties look like? Were those all single family houses or where did you start? Yeah. So I was living in Seattle. So I bought a, a property in Seattle. I knew nothing about like rent to value ratio. That one was, I think I bought it for 350 it rented for 2200 so it was nowhere near the 1% rent-to-value ratio. It was a A-class rental. Um, it was pretty nice property, I thought. I thought it was kind of living large. Nice. Probably the nicest place I've lived in so far. And then it was an yeah, A-class building, A-class neighborhood, you know, everything that you're not supposed to do, right, as a cash flow investor. So uh, that was how I started, but then kind of tweaked things along the way. I bought a duplex. A few years later in Seattle, that was more of an A minus class rental, but then had to go elsewhere to get the 1% rent to value ratio as prices kept creeping up. So in the next uh, five, six years, I started to get into those turnkey rental properties, uh, which I think are a great way to get started, especially for working professionals that are short on time. So I got about 11 of them piled up by the time 2015 came around. And which, which markets did you kind of shift to around that time? Uh, Birmingham, Atlanta, and Indianapolis. And then I had one in Pennsylvania. But that was, okay. that was a weird story. Great, great. And so you were living in Seattle and then buying these properties from turnkey providers. Right. That just sounds what started in the beginning and to just establish the relationship with the property manager. I, turnkey providers, they can do the property management. I personally prefer to go third party with that because I just wanted another person that I could trust that wasn't going to blow smoke up my butt telling me that the rehabs were done well. 
Right. So what I normally did is I, I bought, well, I used a broker in one of them to buy five of them. But, you know, I think the first couple were definitely turnkey variety. Um, but I had a third person, third party property manager managing it to kind of, you know, as I bought more, that was my second source of like, yeah, this is a good one on a good side of the block to kind of vet it remotely. Never visited the properties. Oh, wow. How did you decide on those markets? You know, if you're living in Seattle, you, you had some properties there. Why look at Birmingham, Atlanta and some of these other markets? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, 2012 to 2015, and I'm sure it kind of is the same today. You know, you listen to podcasts, you hear all the, the ads and the marketing on Memphis. So I just wanted to do something a little bit differently. So I went to Birmingham, just you know, just more of a linear, boring market, very similar to Memphis. But I felt like it just wasn't where all the other podcast listeners were going to. And then I went to uh, Atlanta was another one out there that was more of an appreciation play. So I, I thought those comboed well together. And then back then, Indianapolis wasn't nearly as much as it, it is picked over today in terms of, you know, out-of-state investors. So that was kind of where I was going to go next and kind of build out more assets out there. Nice. And then from there, it sounds like you made a pretty big jump. I mean, you're up to 3,500 units. Could you walk us through kind of what that transition was like and, and your kind of train of thought for making the jump from owning your own turnkey rentals into more larger syndication type projects? Yeah, so it took a while, right? Because like when you're a single family home investor, you get around people who, you know, they seem like they're sophisticated, but if you're investing in single family homes, you know, it's just kind of chapter one, in my opinion. You get this, uh, they have this idea of like, oh, we're going to get 10 Fannie Mae Freddie Mac loans in our name and then 10 in our spouse. But if you do the math, and if you do the math, like that's 300 bucks per property of cash flow, you know, 10, 20 property, that's only like three to $6,000 of cash flow. That's, I need a lot more than that, quite frankly, to be able to quit my day job as an engineer. Sure. So, and then, you know, with 10, 11 properties, I was having an eviction every one or two every year. And some of those, like, you know, to no fault of my own, I mean, there, a lot of them are B-class rentals, not too bad, but the tenants would just trash the property. You know, they they'd go through tough times and then they would just trash it. I don't even think they were purposely trying to trash it. They just left it in like pretty dire straits where, you know, some of the repair bills to fix it up were like 10, 20 grand. Wow. And I was like, well, what the heck am I doing this for again? So you combine that with, you know, every quarter or every couple months, I had some kind of big issue that happened, like a plumbing leak or, you know, like a tree falling or something like that, which isn't too bad when you have property management dealing with all that stuff. But, you know, as myself, as the owner, you have to play you know, project manager and, you know, kind of hold their hand and make sure they actually do it amongst their other 200 properties that they manage. And then it just got to be a point where it's like, this is just not scalable. 10, 20 properties is no problem. But when you go to 30, 40, 50, it gets to be ridiculous. And now you're, you're owning decaying assets that are getting older and the cap X wave is going to hit you. So I kind of saw it coming that I need to go to more of a scalable asset class. I didn't have an idea what that was. You know, you follow the breadcrumbs to, you know, I'm doing single family homes. Maybe I'll do multifamily, right? Duh. <laughs> and that was where I started to join different masterminds and get around groups that were higher net worth. You know, they were doctors, lawyers, engineers, but they were 10, 20 years older than myself. 
and then a few million bucks of net worth higher than myself. And, you know, they, these were the guys that I kind of picked their brains on. These guys will invest in, as private equity investors and syndications, mm-hmm. diversify all over the place with different deals, different assets, different operators, different locations. And they all said that that whole 10 Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac thing was silly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. So w- once you kind of surrounded yourself with the right people, what was that? transition like as far as the first deal? Did you partner with other more experienced operators or what was your first deal once you made that jump? Yeah. So I probably spent like about a year to two years just analyzing a whole bunch of deals. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that my path, because I I had kind of like a, had to figure out where my net worth was. And then, you know, if I grew it at 12 to 14% IR, where would I be? And my goal at the time was just to quit my day job, which I didn't really like. So that was, you know, intermediate goal number one. So I was like, well, at the time I was in my late, early 30s. And I was like, well, if I continue on this path, I'll be financially free by the time I'm mid 30s, you know, definitely quit my job by then. So why would I want to kind of be an operator, especially if I lived in Seattle? Right. A lot of these guys, they live in California, Hawaii, New York. To me, I won't invest with those guys. To me, you got to be boots on the ground. I don't invest with the opera unless the boots on the ground. And I realized me living in Seattle and, you know, I eventually wanted to move back home to Hawaii where I live now. It just it wasn't going to be in the cards for me. You know, I mean, I'm like a five foot seven Asian dude. I'm not going to play in the NBA. You know, the thing, <laughs> Linsanity was Linsanity for a reason. So I was like, all right, I'm going to be a passive investor. I'm, I know how to analyze deals. I have a good network. I'm going to focus on that. So that was kind of the first like couple of deals, what I did. I just went in at 50 grand and that allowed me to kind of you know, get a perspective from the LP side first. Yeah. And since then, you you are on the GP side on, on a lot of deals, isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I got on the LP side and then I got brought in on the GP and then I probably went into like about six deals where I was in, you know, the GP is the, the analogy people like to use is the airplane cockpit, you know, the airplane, the, the pilots, and the co-pilots, they sit in the cockpit and fly the airplane with all the passive investors, LPs back and coach. Well, what people don't realize is, you know, you can have a pretty big cockpit and you can have dead weight in the cockpit. So initially I was dead weight. I just sat on the jump seat, <laughs> but I, in the jump seat, you can see what everybody's doing. And you start to realize that most people are just playing on their cell phones and it, it's kind of easy, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's not much to it, but the problem is getting that behind the scenes, look at it and yeah, just getting the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it's just sort of like an apprentice role. The hardest thing is just getting the apprentice rope. Once you're in that seat, you kind of see what's happening and you can kind of learn by osmosis. Right, right. So I was probably in the jump seat of several operating teams. So I got to see how other people do it. And that was, man, that that was probably a lot of free education right there. It's probably like two or three education gurus teaching right there. Yeah. I didn't have to pay for. Well, technically I did pay for. I mean, I was an LP investor too, but. Is there any sort of model that you prefer as far as when you're looking at different operators to partner up with? Are there certain markets you're trying to get into, certain asset classes? 
Yeah, I mean, I think people key in on markets because the investor cannot vet the deal from a numbers perspective. So my rubric is 50% numbers, 50% of people. Mm -hmm. So numbers, I know how to put it into my model and with the raw data, which is the P&Ls, the rent rolls, and I can run my own comps. So those are the three major inputs. And I'm going to use my set of assumptions, not what the operator or sponsor is using, but the, the right, what I feel are the right assumptions to see what, what's the number at the bottom of the spreadsheet or what's the total return or what's the equity multiplier that comes spits out at the bottom of the page. Most people can't do that. So that's where the other 50% comes in in my due diligence, but in most LPs due diligence, this is probably going to be 99% of it, which is the people. So this sounds super basic, but I think it's important to always fall in fundamentals, which is you only invest with people you know, like, or trust. So that translates to people with good integrity and track record. But the problem is, well, how the heck do you verify that, right? Because it's the nature of private placements. It's all private. Right. So as a passive LP investor, you need to build your network with other passive high net worth individuals. And these dudes aren't found the local RIA or the uh, internet forms, right? Because that's just a bunch of broke people who can't afford anything and are kind of <laughs> too lazy. Or just, they're just getting started, right? It's the get rich quick crowd. Sure, yeah. It's not the guy even with the one or two rental properties. Those guys are just too busy to be on those type of forms. So you're trying to find these high net worth individuals and um, you know, build rela organic relationships with, that, with those folks. That's really the only way you can sustainably do this in my opinion. Right. And how did you do that in the beginning when you didn't have that network yet? You didn't have people to refer you to other high net worth individuals. How did you get started building that network? Well, I paid the play. I mean, I paid for like several masterminds, mm. you know, that are well over five figures a year. Nice. So I'm not saying that's for everybody, but that's just what I did. Some other ideas, you know, I know some guys, they go to like cigar clubs or the country club. But you might find second generation money there, right? Like myself and a lot of my uh, my partners, people who do this stuff, we're all first generation wealth. Mm -hmm. We're hungry. There's a reason why we bust our butts, right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of second generation wealth, they've moved on through apartment investing and they're doing more higher end developments. I think that the risk reward on those type of deals aren't as good, mm -hmm. but you're, you can, man, you knock it out of the park. Right with those type of venture capital type of deals, but me personally, you know, I want cash flow, and I invest in kind of what I knew, which is you know, like apartments and workforce housing type of investments. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree, hundred percent. I heard you say before that you specialize in stabilized deals with agency debt because it's less stress. I think you even said that C class properties suck. <laughs> so, do you still feel that way? Are you more focused on? B-class and more stabilized properties when you're looking at deals these days? Yeah. I mean, I think initially, like as a passive investor, you're kind of looking at like, hey, I want cash flow, right? Mm -hmm. Most of us are like, well, we're trying to replace the, the coffers on a monthly basis. So you kind of get suckered into these deals with higher cash flow that are kind of like crummier markets like Memphis. And I'm not saying that Memphis is not a good market, right? <laughs> Don't be like that kind of skim off the top podcast listener. Right, right. But like, that's just a market that's kind of notorious for like nine to 11% cash flows per year. 
but it can be misleading because in a class C deal where you have class C clientele, man, those guys, the collections on those guys are hard. Yeah. It's very hard. I've got a deal in Fort Worth where it's kind of on the Southeast side. And if you've been out there, it's, it's rough. I mean, I wouldn't want to go there at nighttime. I feel uncomfortable even during the daytime. And maybe as a passive investor, you don't care, right? I mean, you're not, right, the, right. You're not the operator. So that's from one perspective. Yeah, but still there. I mean, there's a lot of risk inherent in some of those projects that they look great on paper. But yeah, like you're saying, the rent collections, the turnovers are more difficult. All that stuff is added risk. Right. But that's where you have a little bit more juice, right? That's where, you know, there's a reason why institutions or more established operators won't touch them because they're just not worth squeezing the lemon. Mm-hmm. But yeah. the returns are, in theory are better. But if you're not an astute passive investor to figure that out, it's hard. Sure. But yeah, you know, going through the pandemic, collections dipped on it, you know, across the board, right? I mean, it's a freaking pandemic. And it's the class C guys who don't have barely like 500 bucks and cash savings in the bank. And a lot of those guys, are they could be in more vulnerable employment situations where they just get cut. So as an investor, I mean, this is just my progression. I mean, I've, I did a lot of Class C stuff originally, but I'm moving more towards the Class B and the A- minus stuff. Again, it's like, I don't really need to double my money every five years, right? Like As long as I don't lose money, I'll be fine. Right, right. Yeah. So you're more focused on cash flow, it sounds like. Right. Just like, I mean, eventually I'll probably gravitate more towards triple net, Walgreens, dollar stores, and life settlement investing because kind of move as your net worth grows to different type of investments. But I want to caveat that if you're like the dude who has under half a million dollars net worth, don't listen to what I'm saying. You have to go find, you know, you got to grow your equity. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit because I know your podcast, Simple Passive Cash Flow, there's a ton of insight there and you don't just talk about multifamily. Let's talk about the, the 5% net worth investment size rule. Could you elaborate on, on how that works exactly? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people call me and they're like, hey, you know, they hear all this like breadcrumbs marketing on multifamily. And to me, yeah, that's what I invest in. Oh, I mean, they hear like, oh, the multiple roofs, blah, 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 efficiencies with management. And it's all true. But to me, when your net worth is under half a million, you have no business investing as a passive investor in a syndication deal. Mm-hmm. Like you're in no syndicator should take your money unless they're desperate because that 50 grand to you, which is a typical minimum investment, is a big deal to a, somebody whose net worth is a quarter million, half a million. Yeah. And non-accredited investors are very needy. They take a long time to educate. They ask so many questions because that money means a lot to them, like I said. And once they invested in one deal, they blew their whole load. Mm-hmm. They ran out of money. Right. right. <laughs> so it makes no sense to take in non-accredited investors. And that's why I kind of have this rule of you know 5 to 10% of your money is kind of the max that you should load to in, into any one investment. Mm-hmm. You know, passive investor, you got to be thinking about it, diversification through four ways. So different operators, number one, different asset classes. So mobile home park, self-storage, multifamily, you know, spread it around. Like I love multifamily. Most, most of my holdings are multifamily, but I think it's 
not prudent to be all in one asset class. It, and I don't have any experience in this. I mean, I, I just kind of listen what other more astute investors kind of tell me. And to me, it makes sense. But I would say 70% of my portfolio is in multifamily. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then different locations, geographic locations, and then different business plans, right? Some might be more of a value add, some might be more yield, some might be ground up development, that type. But yeah, you're trying to diversify over your spectrum and everybody has a different investment philosophy and you're, you're trying to build a portfolio of investments to achieve what you're trying, what you want to do, your risk reward spectrum. And you can't do that only if you load in 50 grand and that 50 grand is 50% of your net worth. Right. It just doesn't work, right? Yeah, no, I agree. And then people, people are like, well, what do I do? I'm like, yeah, man, like, look at me. Like I started at zero net worth in 2007 when I graduated college, I bought a rental and it was like watching grass grow. This is not the get rich quick scheme. This is the get rich surely thing. Yeah. So would you recommend that path? Say just to use that example, if someone has a hundred grand net worth, what is the best path for that person? Would you recommend starting with turnkey rentals and then, you know, slowly over time growing until they're ready to invest in syndications? That's what I would say. I mean, go out and buy two, three rentals with that hundred grand, put down twenty to thirty thousand dollar down payment. And uh, by doing this, you do two things: you get experience, right? I mean, it doesn't it doesn't take much to run these things, but in the first three to six months, you'll get you'll get a huge, huge experience bump that will help you to vet syndication deals in the future. I mean, just certain simple things like knowing what the rental value ratios. A lot of LP accredited investors have no clue what that is. Sure, yeah. Right? They look at something silly on a pitch deck like the sales comps. And I'm like, what the heck does the sales comps have to do with anything? <laughs> we don't know what that what that property is operating in other than that there's a picture and it's sold for this much. Mm-hmm. It could have been an extremely well-performing property. It could be horribly. But that's just not what, you know, that's more of like a kind of an insider thing, I guess. But like if you were a path, uh, investor with a single family home, you can kind of vet deals on a per unit basis, you know, whether it's 250 units, you break down the purchase price divided by the the cost per unit, and you figure out what the average rents are, and you kind of look at it, right? You have Mm -hmm. somewhat of a a real life experience, as opposed to you're just some rich accredited dude that has really just looking at the shiny PDF, like this is a horrible way of investing. And and secondly, the most important thing is your network. Right. If you have no holdings, you're just a rich accredited dude, you offer no value to other accredited passive investors. You're just another rich guy and that's pretty not valuable. And it's not a good way to build relationships. You have to add value to people to build to fire spark that organic relationship. So let's dive into one of the things that you mention on your podcast, Simple Passive Cash Flow. You've got three rules of investing. Could you give the listener some insight as to what those three rules are? Yeah. So I, I run like a mastermind and people always come with these deals <laughs> and I, you know, like Bitcoin or like, uh, mm. what's the latest, like the lawyer, you kind of part JV with a lawyer who is like working a case and you get to split the profits or just some kind of random funds out there. But like the three rules of investing is like, I like things that are hard assets, right? So, Real estate is that. Things that are not hard assets are like, you know, debt. I mean, unless there's some hard collateral attached to it. 
the, the next thing is it produces income. So like gold is a hard asset, but that doesn't produce income. And then the last thing is like you can leverage it. So a lot of things you can't really leverage. Right. So real estate is the one of the very few things that hits all those marks. Plus it has the nice tax benefits too. So when people bring a deal, I'm kind of like, all right, well, does it hit on these three things, right? Like, I mean, a lot of kids, they do this, that Bitcoin thing. And I admit it seems kind of fun, I guess. And it definitely is probably the future. But to me, it's, I mean, we can debate, I guess, if it's, if it's a hard asset, it is sort of a currency, I guess, but it doesn't produce me income and it's kind of not leverageable. I mean, there's the futures market, but to me, it's like, I try and stay in my lane. Like, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's going to blow up or anything like that. But to me, I know workforce housing, really boring investments. And that's kind of where I stick to. It's that time of the show for a segment called Best Deal, Worst Deal, where we talk about real estate transactions that you've done in the past so that others can learn from your knowledge and expertise. So Lane, with that said, what's the best real estate deal that you've done? Best real estate deal is the first time I went out of state, first Birmingham property. It was, I've been a landlord up to that point, but it, it's a big step to go out of state and go totally remote yeah. investor. And then the fact that you don't even see the property and you just kind of trust your property manager and your broker and your property inspector that you bring on board. So without that, it, I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be able to sign on pri- all these private placement memorandums. I don't have a clue what they, they mean. It kind of helped me get to this stage where I, I kind of trust in the system. Could you talk about just a little bit about the purchase price and kind of how much profit you made from that first deal? Yeah, so I think I bought it for about seventy grand. It rented for eight fifty. Tenant stayed in there for a really long time. Collections were okay, I guess. They eventually got caught up. Yeah, I mean, to me, I didn't really take too many chances in the beginning of my investing, my first five years, just doing investing for cash flow. I didn't do any burrs, but that's maybe that's probably why it took me so damn long to get up to eleven <laughs> rentals. But sure. And do you still own that first property or have you? No, sold yeah, I unloaded it. I, I sold seven of my properties in 2018, a couple of them last year. And I still have a two more left, which I'm trying to sell. Oh, nice. But um, yeah, I mean, once I found this, the private placements and syndications, that was just a more scalable way for me to invest. Yeah. What was the profit from that first deal that you sold? Do you remember? I mean, I probably hit uh, my, you know, like the 10% cash flow per year and then I probably sold that thing for 90 or something like that so okay nice yeah you know it's kind of textbook right you know half from cash flow half from appreciation mm-hmm. yeah awesome what would you say is the worst real estate deal that you've done in 2012 I got introduced to my first private placement deal I thought it was the best deal in the world just like how a lot of people think that the first person they go out on a date is <laughs> I invested 45,000 bucks to buy this property and um, where I was kind of in the passive role and I didn't, so I got this, I always say like, you know, only go off of referrals off other investors that you trust. So I went off a referral off a self-directed IRA company and I don't know why the heck I did this. It's, I, I thought it was repti- these guys are reputable, right? I mean, they have, they're, I'm a company, but 
the fatal flaw here was the per, the referral. They didn't have their own money, and they're just some dude that works for a company mm. that I'm sure they had some marketing agreement with or whatever, and they're getting some kind of kickback or whatnot, or just a referral relationship. But I don't know who that guy was. I'd like to know. Yeah, <laughs> he told me that. <laughs> but this is why I, I always come back. To, you got to build a relationship with people first, other passive investors. And you have to verify that they actually put in 50 grand with this guy. Because there's a lot of past high net worth passive investors that say a lot of stuff that say somebody is good. But when you check their portfolio, they don't, they don't own anything. They never invested. And it's just by proxy. Yeah. Kind of say this stuff so that they sound cool and they, they sound like they're in the know. So that was the fatal flaw there. The guy, I found out shortly after that from other people, as, as I was starting to grow my network at the time, that, yeah, oh, yeah, that guy's a shyster. He's going to steal mm. your money. And then sure enough, I think like 18 months later, you know, the letter came saying, oh, we, we, investment's not going well. We have to go declare bankruptcy. It's like, oh, geez. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. So what what happened at that point? It's your first syndication. You invest 45K. They claim bankruptcy. What happens to investor funds at that point? I didn't do anything. To me, it wasn't worth my uh, my time or life energy. So I didn't really pursue legal action to investigate it further. I see. And that's why you only invest less than five or 10% of your net worth, right? Right. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, maybe if it was a hundred or 200 at the time, my net worth was like 500. Mm -hmm. Maybe I would have pursued legal action, but you know, most accredited investors, the way they play the game is they do a few test investments and if they get their money back, well, they're dropping the mother load. Right. And I think for most people under a million dollars net worth, that might sound a little bit irresponsible, but that's really the only way to do it unless you have a good network around you that you trust that have invested their own money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes going into a deal and losing your money or not having a good experience is best like social capital, you can go around to build other relationships. Because I sure as hell like to know who are people not to invest. You right. know, if anybody <laughs> if anybody here has lost any money, please let me know. Yeah. You know my email address is this and <laughs> let me know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, Lane, we're getting a little bit short on time here, but I'd love to ask you just one final question. What's the best way for someone to get started as a passive investor? Make sure you own rental properties on your own first to at least kind of get some background. Mm -hmm. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I love that advice. And then build your network. But if you can't build a network because you live out, you're not around anybody, you don't have the network, well, unfortunately, you're just going to have to invest and, you know, put up a prayer. Mm -hmm. Right on. And Lean, where can other investors connect with you and learn more about what you're working on? Yeah, I mean, they can kind of follow my journey at Simple Passive Cashflow. Been doing it since I bought single family homes back in the day. And my email address is lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. So if you got any uh, burn book stories, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, cool. Thanks again for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day. Well, thanks, Mark. Hey, everybody. It's Mark Allen Kenny. I'm doing this crazy thing right now where I'm offering a free one-on-one call with me to talk about your investment goals. We can talk about syndications, joint ventures, whatever you're looking to accomplish in real estate. Just go to our website and book your free call with me today at giantapartmentbuildings.com.